John chapter 18. I'm just going to read the first nine verses. Would you follow along, please? John chapter 18. I'm just reading first eight, nine verses. When he had finished praying, Jesus left with his disciples and crossed the Kidron Valley. On the other side, there was a garden, and he and his disciples went into it. Now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place, because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. So Judas came to the garden, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Jesus, knowing all this was going to happen to him, went out and asked them, Who is this you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. And Judas, the traitor who was standing there with them, when Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Again he asked them, Who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they said. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. If you are looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave um, Brad Lynn. Brad Lynn just gave me this morning the uh, United Church Observer. And he wanted me to read something. And uh, the, the article he wanted me to read was, How Should We Interpret the Bible's Miracles? How Should We Interpret the Bible's Miracles? Um, let's see, what was I going to say about this? Uh, essentially, you should take the, the Bible's miracles as myths. Myths were created to disclose the nature of reality and way of life commensurate with it. The biblical account of Jesus' resurrection shows this well. To treat the story as if it were a science or history text is misguided. Indeed, the resurrection should be looked at as a different sort of literature, namely profound myth, that when existentially interpreted yields crucial levels of meaning. I'd like to just throw it away. Um, the, the, pro the problem with treating the miracles as myth is that the whole Bible is built on those very miracles. And so when in a place like James, uh, the end of the book of James, James will tell you, if you are sick, pray. Because the prayers of a righteous man are powerful and effective. Because Elijah was a man just like us. And when he prayed, it didn't rain. And when he prayed again, it rained. Those are miracles. And he says, that's why you pray. God does miracles. Um, we've been looking in the Gospel of John. And here's John's response to the United Church article. The very end of the book, John writes this. This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. 
If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Um, the United Church would have you believe that John is making that up. He's just saying that so that you read his book and give it credibility. Uh, he's a liar. Um, but that's not the case. Just this week, I was uh, surprised when uh, the New York Times showed some video clips of the man who did the massacre in Las Vegas. And in six and a half minutes, you can see his planning. He shows up at the hotel, and he gets luggage out of his car, puts it on a luggage cart, and the bellhop helps him take the luggage to the service elevator. He then takes it up to his room. He has a whole suite. He puts them in his room. He then goes down and he goes to the slots, talks to people, and then he drives back to an apartment he's rented in town, does something there, drives home to Mesquite, comes back the next day, shows up, he unloads luggage from his car, the bellhop helps him, and he takes another cart full of luggage to his hotel room. It's all, you can watch it all there on videotape. He goes down, plays on the slots, goes to the bar, eats some food, and he talks to people. Drives home to Mesquite. Comes back. He's got a couple more pieces of luggage. Takes it up to his room. Goes back to his apartment across town. Comes back, has some more luggage, goes up to his room. And you see all this taking place, and you go, just an ordinary individual. And then as you think about it, you go, this is incredibly nefarious. This guy is planning this, and he's planned it down to the minute and down to the hour, and it takes him days. It takes him days to get 25 pieces of luggage and boxes up to his room so that he has enough ammunition and enough guns to kill a whole lot of people. He looks so ordinary and carefree as he drinks at the bar and he talks to people. You see him as he plays the slots, and I think he's playing the slots just so he can throw anyone off the scent of what he's really doing. He is meticulously planning to kill as many people as he can. He's 64 years old. He kills 58, and he wounds 851. The Gospels all tell the same story. They tell the story of about a man in his mid-30s who makes meticulous plans so that he can be killed, so that he can save everybody who wants it. And they paint that picture day after day of a man who meticulously and resolutely walks toward his death so that he can save us. I hope that's what you see again today as we look in this text, as Jesus walks to the cross deliberately so that he will die for us. The only reason I can think of why a man would kill that many people is he wanted, to be, he wanted infamy. He wanted to be famous. 
Jesus goes to the cross because he loves you. Uh, Dan read up to verse 9. Let me read the rest of the passage. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. Then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. Jesus commanded Peter, Put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Then the detachment of soldiers with its commander and the Jewish officials arrested Jesus. They bound him and brought him first to Annas, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, the high priest that year. Caiaphas was the one who advised the Jews, it would be good if one man died for the people. Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. But Peter had to wait outside at the door. The other disciple, who was known to the high priest, came back, spoke to the girl on duty there, and brought Peter in. You are not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. It was cold. And the servants and officials stood around a fire they had made to keep warm. Peter also was standing with with them, warming himself. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I have spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogues or at the temple where all the Jews come together I said nothing in secret. Why question me? Ask those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby struck him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why do you strike me? Then Anna sent him, still bound, to Caiaphas, the high priest. As Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, You are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. I think John writes his gospel after the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. I think he knows what they say, and he writes his a little differently. And he brings out little different points of theology and emphasizes different parts of the story so that he gets his point across. And he probably writes about late first century, 80, 90 A.D. The very latest he could write is 110, because we have a copy of John from 110. It's about the size of your fist, and it has two verses on it. But it's definitely from the Gospel of John, and it's the earliest manuscript we have of the New Testament, which is quite phenomenal to have a manuscript that's only, say, 20 years after the original. And uh, John writes here, 
to this, this is the point. Jesus chooses the cross. Jesus chooses the cross. Notice how he emphasizes this. He tells you in the beginning of the story that Jesus has gone to a secret location. Nobody knows it's there. Nobody knows they go there. Judas knows. Judas knows where it is. And Judas is the one that's going to lead them. And so John tells you that they bring a cohort of soldiers. Or Greek word is a spera. Latin word is cohort. And it means 600 men. It's also possible to translate the Greek word spera as a maniple of soldiers, which would be 60 to 120 men. That's how many Roman soldiers there are. The smallest amount would be 60. They also have a commander. It's in verse 12, I believe. Yeah, the detachment of soldiers with its commander. The Greek word for commander is kiliarchus, which means leader of a thousand. It's actually a very prominent military officer. You have centurions, that's a hundred, and then over a centurion you have a kiliarchus in charge of a thousand. And then over the kiliarchus you would have a tribune or the, or the general of the army. So this is an important officer. And Pilate has obviously gotten involved in this, and he has sent 60 Roman soldiers with a commander to arrest Jesus. But it's not just Roman soldiers. Notice verse 3. He's guiding a detachment of soldiers and officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. So the chief priests also send soldiers, and the Pharisees also send soldiers. So there's at least 60 Roman soldiers and a number of other soldiers, and they're coming to arrest Jesus. That verse tells you they have torches, lanterns, and weapons. They're not going there to arrest one person. They're going there to wipe out a movement. That's why you have that big a group. But notice what happens. Verse 4. Jesus, John tells you this, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, that's his editorial comment. He goes, you know something? I look back and I go, Jesus knew all along what was going on. That's why he did what he did. Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, he went out to meet them and asked, who is it you want? Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. Jesus said, I am he. Literally, I am. Ego a me. I am. Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Phenomenal. By the way, this is a miracle. Right? This is a miracle. So all the soldiers back up. This is the one we're waiting for. They back up and they all fall down. Now, if Jesus wanted to get away, what would he do? Run away. They lay it on their backs. 
Let's get out of here. Or if you wanted to fight them, what could you do? Hit them while they're on the ground. I don't know much about fighting, but I know you try to get them on the ground and then you jump on top of them. Uh, this is a miracle. A tremendous miracle. It's the power of Jesus. Uh, the, only, the only thing I can think of, of like it that has occurred uh, occurred during the First Great Awakening in the United States. In the 1700s, in the First Great Awakening, and uh, the history of the United States is that at that time, uh, Americans were known for being drunkards and uh, not being very good people. And uh, it was pretty rough and rowdy in the 1700s. And uh, drink was very prominent. Uh, alcoholism was rampant. And uh, when they would have religious meetings, you would have an evangelist come to, come to the area and when the evangelists come to the area, people would get together to go and listen to the evangelist. But not just Christians would go, everybody would go. Because this is a chance for a party. And so, while the evangelist would be preaching, people out on the outskirts of the meeting would be drinking and carousing and partying. This is our history. The same kind of things happened in Canada, by the way. And uh, it was like lawlessness and no religion at all. But during the first great awakening, when the preacher would preach, there were times the spirit would move so mightily, a force would come out from the speaker and would knock people down. And people would be so afraid, they would try to run away and something would come and hit them from the backside and knock them down. And it would be just like a wave would go and knock everybody down flat. Even those out in the back that were partying. First Great Awakening. Powerful movement of the Spirit. Now, by the way, people still try to reduplicate those kind of things today. I don't know if they do. But the First Great Awakening, you can read about it. Tremendous movement under George Whitfield, the Wesleys. Uh, God turned the nation around. And so as a result, when it came time for the nation to form, there was a base of Christianity because of that First Great Awakening. God had done a special movement in the United States and in Canada. I've spoken to you about that before. I've got a relative named George Whitfield Ben. Apparently somewhere in the past, my forefathers, they came to Christ under the ministry of George Whitfield, were so impressed. I've got a relative named George Whitfield Ben. A spiritual force came. That's what happens in the garden. And all of them are knocked down. And you see, Jesus is in control of the situation. He's not, he's, not in the, he's not in control of the religious leaders. The Romans don't have the upper hand. It's Jesus who has the upper hand. And you see that in this text. So he asks them again. They're lying flat on the ground. 
Who is it you want? As they stand back up, Jesus of Nazareth. I told you that I am. I am he. If you're looking for me, let these men go. And John has already told you I am is significant. He has loaded loaded it with theological content. When Jesus says I am, he's not just saying, hey, I'm the guy. He's saying, hey, I'm very God. The clearest place in John is in John 8. Jesus says to a number of Jews, Abraham, your father, rejoiced to see my day. He was and was glad. And the Jews are scratching their head. Right? Abraham's about 2000 B.C. How did Abraham see you and he was glad? And Jesus' response, before Abraham was, I am. I pre-exist Abraham. I was already there. In fact, I think as you read your Bible and you read about God meeting Abraham, that is Jesus Christ, the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ, meeting Abraham. And Abraham was glad to meet him. This is the second person of the Trinity. That blows the Jews away. They couldn't believe it. He's making himself out to be equal with God, and they want to kill him then. And John's reminding you again, as they go to arrest him, he is very God, and if he wants to walk out of the garden, he can. And he chooses not to. But notice what he does do. He said, I told you I am, and if you are looking for me, let these men go. Kind of reminds me of Obi-Wan Kenobi. These are not the men you are looking for. If you haven't watched Star Wars, you won't get it. If you're looking for me, let these men go. And notice, this happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. And Jesus is saving his disciples in the garden. Saves them right there. Because they want to wipe out the movement. That's why they brought that many. Let's get rid of all of them. And Jesus goes, no, I'm the one you want. Uh, Simon is not happy with that. That takes us to point number two. Peter blows it. (laughs) Peter blows it. Point number one, Jesus gives up his life. Point number two, Jesus blows it. Verse 10, then Simon Peter, who had a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant, cutting off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus commanded Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? I will drink it. I will do this. It's funny, Jesus has just said, let these men go. I'm the one you want. And Peter goes, no, I'm going to stop this. Out comes the sword, and he starts to swing. Brave, but foolish. Uh, Peter is like you, and Peter is like me. Because he blows it repeatedly on this night. Notice verse 15. 
Simon Peter and another disciple were following Jesus. The other disciple is John. Because this disciple was known to the high priest, he went with Jesus into the high priest's courtyard. Peter had to wait outside the door. The other disciple who was known to the high priest came back, spoke to the girl at the door. She brought Peter in. You're not one of his disciples, are you? The girl at the door asked Peter. He replied, I am not. (laughs) Same words as Jesus. I am, but no. I am not. Where did the bravery go? Scared in the face of a little girl. Verse 25, as Simon Peter stood warming himself, he was asked, you are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it, saying, I am not. And one of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, challenged him. Didn't I see you with him in the olive grove? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, a rooster began to crow. Peter blows it. It's not a good night for Peter. At the Last Supper, he had been arguing with the disciples as to who was greatest. He then argued with Jesus. He told Jesus, even if everyone else falls away from you, I will never leave you, and I will not fall away. And Jesus says, before the night's over, you will betray me. You will deny me three times. When Jesus tries to save him in the garden, or when Jesus does save him in the garden, Peter's not going to have any of it. Jesus isn't going to save me. And so he takes out his sword. He's going to save Jesus. He does so many things wrong. He's just like you and I. Spiritual pride. I'll save myself, and I'll save Jesus. How many of you have pride? The rest of you are liars. Right? We're all proud. I think it's one of the things that keeps us from coming to Jesus. Right? Pride. I don't need a Savior. I'm not that bad. Surely God will, God, 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 God will love me. Notice me. I, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a wonderful person. I like me. God will too. proud, overestimates his ability, underestimates his need, that he needs someone to die for him and wash away his sin. And then when it comes right down to it, he lacks courage and he's afraid. And it's some of the simplest things like somebody asking you, do you follow Jesus? Now, I don't know if they ask you that. Imagine, if are you, are you a follower of Jesus? Uh, sometimes. Uh, do you believe in God? Uh, you, might, you might get asked that one. Are you a religious person? And you might say, yeah, I'm a religious person. Listen, you're not religious people, right? That's not the answer. You're not a religious person. You are a follower of Jesus. Right? Because you say, you say you're a religious person or you say you're a person of faith or I'm a spiritual person to really say nothing. That says nothing. 
Everybody says that. That's not courage. That's fear. That's like Peter before the little girl. Are you with Jesus? I am not. Peter blows it. But spoiler alert. As Peter stands in that courtyard, and there's a little fire going around a charcoal fire. Because the end of the story is not Peter's denial of Jesus, but Jesus reaching out and saying, Peter, I want you. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Two points for you to take home. Number one, today you need a Savior. If you're trying to save yourself, you're going to fall short, and it's not going to work. That's why Jesus gives himself up in the garden to be your Savior. Secondly, you have failed. The greatest Christian, Peter, the leader of the church, the first Christian, the one that Jesus will build his church on, was a tremendous failure. And yet Jesus chose him, reinstated him, used him, loved him. There's hope for you. And there's hope for me. Let's give our lives to Jesus. Let's follow Jesus. Ask him to be our Savior if you haven't already. Obey him and love him. Let's look to the Lord in prayer.